This is a download from News Talk 106 to 108. To download other programmes or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books. Thanks to Hodges Figures, the bookstore. On News Talk 106 to 108. Hello and you're very welcome to Talking Books with me, Susan Cahill. In the mix tonight, best-selling crime writer John Connolly takes on his critics and defends his literary genre. Male writers, if they have an ounce of common sense to them, will be very aware of being open to accusations of misogyny. It's very easy to push a reader's buttons by killing a woman. We react differently as human beings to the death of a woman or a child than we do to the death of young men. Young men die because that's what young men do. You know, a lot of violence is male-on-male violence. It's young men with knives, it's drunk, you know. It's not very, very interesting. We react as human beings quite differently to harm that befalls a woman. But I think most male writers are conscious of the fact that that's too easy to do and we have to be very careful with it. Vanessa O'Loughlin, the creative force behind writing.ie, tells me why you don't need to have a fancy leaving certificate to write a bestseller. I think one of the key things for people to remember is that it's not about the degree that you have. It's about story and the type of people who left school maybe when they were 13 or 14. I'm thinking of one particular writer called Eta Roach. She left school when she was 14. She was very, very bad dyslexic. But she has stories bursting out of her. Really, that's what the bottom line is. For anybody who wants to write, don't be shackled by your lack of education or your inhibitions. And... We walk the streets of Paris with the grandmaster of the historical novel, Edward Rutherford, and hear about his epic new doorstopper, Paris City of Light. But first, in 1999, Dublin-born writer John Connolly rocked onto the Irish literary stage with his debut crime thriller, Every Dead Thing. Since then, John has produced numerous books in the Charlie Parker series, as well as writing two children's fantasy novels, a collection of short novellas and other standalone crime and mystery books. Well, earlier in the week, Talking Books was delighted to catch up with John Connolly and hear his views on women, violence and crime writing. But before we got stuck into all the juicy, gruesome stuff, we talked about crime and mystery writing and how he copes with the fact that readers either love or hate his books. I think it's lessened as the years have gone by. I suppose the earlier novels, A, they were quite violent at times, but also I think critics and some readers were unfamiliar with that idea of melding genres, of taking aspects of supernatural fiction or very anti-rationalist fiction and superimposing it on crime fiction. Crime fiction is quite a conservative genre. That's changed a little bit over the last decade. The example I've always given was that if it was a white person, it would only date other white people. It doesn't really like miscegenation very much. And I think that was what was problematical to begin with. The difficulty, I suppose, is that once you get depicted in a certain way, whether that's by critics or by readers or even by booksellers who want to know where to put you in a store, that does tend to follow you a little bit. And so I made a decision quite early on that I would flick around to other things, that I would make it quite difficult to do those blanket definitions of what I do and in that way buy myself a degree of freedom and buy myself a kind of permission to experiment which I think if you write 10 or 12 novels in a series in a particular genre it becomes very difficult for you to break out of that because readers have certain expectations of what you do booksellers have certain expectations of what you do so it's better to kind of set out your framework from the start and say look gonna jump around the place a little bit there will be some things that readers will like there will be some things where they may feel that's not necessarily for them but the flip side of that is that when I wrote the book of lost things 
things. Not all of the Charlie Parker, the crime fans, followed along with that. At the same time, you expose yourself to a different readership. And some of them then tend to come back to the series as well and want to explore you more. All writers really have a career that's like the concentric circles of a target. In the middle, you have the little red circle. And they are the people who, on the week that your book comes out, no matter what it is, if it has your name on it, they will go out and buy it. Because they've signed on for the long trip. They're there for whatever you do. And outside them, you have the people who will buy, say, the Charlie Parker book in hardback for their holiday. And they may wait until the other ones come out in paperback because they're not going to spend 16 or 17 quid on you when they're not sure what they're getting. And outside of that, you have the people who just buy you in paperback. And then there's the vast majority of people who don't give a rat's ass what you do one way or the other because they've no interest in it. Your career is sustained by the first two circles. And in particular, by that little core of people at the beginning who really have signed on for the long trip. And there seems to be an awful lot of snobbery in the publishing or in the literary world because crime fiction or fantasy fiction is always seen as the kind of second class citizen. Like it's always seen as not quite smart enough or not sophisticated, you know, People read their fantasy and stuff at home, but, you know, if they're have been pictured themselves, celebrity pictures, they're always reading literary fiction or poetry or something. They're never there with this kind of juicy little crime novel. Why is that? And do you think that's the problem with the audience as well as the publishing world? Who's responsible for that? I think that's less true than it used to be. It began to change very slowly. It began to change initially when the sales from supermarkets began to be counted in the bestseller list because then what they began to reveal was what people were actually reading rather than what people said they were actually reading, which are two very different things. By and large, I think genre fiction tends to attract quite smart readers, especially things like fantasy and science fiction, where you really do have kind of a high-functioning core of people reading it. And crime fiction as well. I think these are not necessarily easy novels to read. I sometimes think as well that genre fiction is often much more serious than literary fiction. The difference, I think, between literary fiction and genre fiction is that literary fiction, its primacy is language. First and foremost, with literary fiction, it is how the thing is written. Okay, so to some degree, the subject matter kind of takes second place to that. What we think about in literary fiction is how beautifully it is written. Now, really good literary fiction obviously manages to combine the two. But we've all read books, I think, and I certainly have, because I read quite widely. I will have read, read a piece of literary fiction. And I think, well, actually, the language here is not just getting in the way of what's being said, but it's actually concealing the fact that there's very little substance to it. Whereas genre fiction, I think, tends to tackle subjects. It tends to tackle ideas. That's the focus of it. And then it turns to the way that the thing is written and adopts the form that's best suited to that. I also think that genre fiction, by and large, tends to get judged by the weakest of it. We tend to judge literary fiction by the best of it. Genre fiction, we tend to take the guys who are selling gazillions of copies and you know, can't string a sentence together and go, this is what genre fiction is. And in fact, that's simply not true. Literary fiction is a genre. It's as much a genre as crime fiction is. It's simply the approach is different. But I think it's certainly not with publishers. It's a very small core of critics. Mm. If you look at newspapers, there's a kind of pecking order. You will very rarely see horror reviewed in newspapers. It's simply not done. And for a long time, it wasn't even stocked in big bookstores, or it was put at the back with a porn because it was slightly embarrassing. The same with fantasy. Fantasy is presumed not to be serious. In the same way that humorous fiction, comic fiction, is often assumed not to be serious, whereas comic fiction is very serious indeed. So I think it's not so much a problem with publishers and readers as a certain perception among a core of the media. And it's so well crafted. Like, a good fantasy book is brilliantly crafted and takes a lot of hard work. Well, people write fantasy or write science fiction or write romantic fiction or write crime fiction, not because it's the only thing that they can do. It's because that is the form that allows them to explore the ideas that interest them. And then they apply their talents to it. And those talents are going to vary. Some people are going to be very, very good. Some people are going to be there really to knock out a kind of airplane read for you. And that has its place. You don't always want to be reading Dostoevsky when you're on your way to Marbella. You know, books have their place. 
And, you know, different books suit us at different times. And that's true right across genres. There are crime fiction books that are very disposable. There are fantasy novels that are disposable. On the other hand, there are fantasy novels that are just suffused with ideas, often in a way that you don't see to the same degree in certain types of literary fiction. What about all the heavy violence? And, you know, a lot of crime fiction nowadays has unbelievable levels of violence. Like, there's about 30 people knocked off at the end of some books I've read. Bodies are found, usually semi-naked women, all mangled and just jointed, half naked over some weird mountain or something like that. Do we have to take the 20 knockoffs and the 20 shootouts and seven bodies and then five detectives killed before we find who the murderer is? Why do we get all of this in crime fiction nowadays? Well, the answer is we don't. I mean, that's a tiny proportion mm. of crime fiction. There's always going to be, in any genre, there's going to be a degree of exploitation. It's mm. the same in cinema. You know, yeah. there will be movies that deal with issues of crime and violence in a responsible way. There will be movies that do it to titillate. And it's not a clear line of demarcation. Mm. And writers will overstep it occasionally, sometimes willingly, sometimes involuntarily, sometimes backstory. But it's largely not true. I mean, there are as many different types of crime fiction as there are writers. And I think the folks in a lot of crime fiction tends to be less in the nature of the violence that's committed, but often the aftermath. I think male and female writers approach it differently. Male writers, if they have an ounce of common sense to them, will be very aware of being open to accusations of misogyny. It's very easy to push a reader's buttons by killing a woman. We react differently as human beings to the death of a woman or a child than we do to the death of young men. Young men die because that's what young men do. You know, a lot of violence is male-on-male violence. It's young men with knives, it's drunk. You know, it's not very, very interesting. We react as human beings quite differently to harm that befalls a woman. But I think most male writers are conscious of the fact that that's too easy to do and we have to be very careful with it. Female writers sometimes approach the subject differently. And quite often, as a reader and as a writer, it is a way of exploring things that frighten you. And literature, we have to remember, is a way of doing this. Literature is a way of exploring worlds. It's a way of exploring experience. Literature takes the specific and turns it into the universal. It's why, for example, non-fiction books about sexual crime tend to sell to women. Men do not buy those books. They are a way of exploring something that frightens you in a very, very safe environment. By and large, when women write books in which there is violence against women, they're very interested in how people survive it, how people come out at the other end. And at the same time, when we read these books, they give us answers that we don't get in real life. In real life, we read the court reports in newspapers and people get away with suspended sentences or they're simply not convicted. And something in the back of our mind says, actually, that doesn't ring right with me. You know, a lot of crime goes unsolved. A lot of bad things happen to people and nobody is punished. You would be very dissatisfied if you picked up a crime novel and at the end of it, the person who committed all these terrible crimes got away. There is a kind of reassurance in crime fiction. What crime fiction says is that if good people do not stand by, if good people assume responsibility, then a degree of justice can be achieved in the world. The writer William Gaddis once said, in the next life we have justice, in this world we have the law. Crime fiction is very interested in that disparity between law and justice. And by and large, writers refuse to accept that justice has to happen simply in the next world. Now, one of the exciting things about you is, as a writer, you also write for children. And I have a load of nieces, and they are avid readers. And the one thing I'm always very reassured about is the fact that books can be best friends for kids. Books can take kids away from the stresses of their daily life and also educate them. What is it like changing your voice to relate to a child? And how difficult is that transition from writing crime and fantasy? I know you're doing an element of both in your children's books, but the tone and the story and the message has to be completely tailored to a certain demographic. The only difference really for me is that you have fewer grey areas. 
Adults like grey areas. Adults like moral compromise. We live in areas of moral compromise. You know, we cheat on our husbands or our wives because they don't understand us. We don't really want to hurt them. You know, we're not bad people. We keep a bit of money back from the taxman, not because we're trying to steal, but because actually we're kind of needed at the moment. It's a bit difficult for us. Younger people really don't accept those kinds of moral compromises. And so you kind of approach it from that angle. And yet at the same time, you want to allow them to explore the adult world. It kind of goes back to what I was saying about mystery fiction in the same way, that these are ways of exploring the world. It's quite interesting that adolescents often pick up horror fiction. And parents go, oh my God, they're reading horror fiction. This is just terrible. But actually horror fiction is, is like chicken. It's carrier food. Very rarely about what it seems to be about. If kids are reading Twilight, not reading Twilight because Twilight's about vampires and werewolves. They're reading Twilight because it's about a kid whose parents' marriage is broken up and who's torn between two guys you know both who seem perfectly nicely and is trying to negotiate this kind of morass of difficult feelings that begin to intrude as you enter the adult world so they become ways of exploring the complexity of the adult world through metaphor in the same way that fairy tales were so they're very very powerful in that way i tend to assume that the kids who are reading my books are really smart by and large they're smarter than adults and you can't talk down to them it's really easy to talk down to adults most of us spend the time kind of massaging the egos of the people around us you can't talk down to kids you kind of approach them from the basis that, listen, you're very, very smart. And, you know, the books that I write tend to deal with quantum physics. They tend to have little bits of history and psychology in them. And I kind of assume that even if the kids get 70% of the jokes, somewhere down the line, you know, a kid's going to read about Samuel Johnson and realise that for most of his life, a man named Boswell followed him around with a pen and will suddenly understand why this kid's Dachshund was called Boswell if he was called Samuel Johnson. So there are little jokes that can follow around like that. For me, writing for children, it's curious. No matter what kind of writer you are, whether you're writing fantasy, whether you're writing science fiction, whether you're writing literary fiction, you will only have a couple of subjects that you come back to again and again. All writers circle the same subjects. Some of them only have one subject. Throughout your career, it's like a spiral. You're getting closer and closer to the thing that you want to write about, or to the heart of it. And childhood comes through in all of my books. In the Parker novels, in the ghost stories that I've written, in the Book of Lost Things, which is about a child trying to recover from loss. So the kids' books are another way of writing about that, perhaps slightly more directly. I'm fascinated by that period, you said pre-teens, and that period between about the ages of 12 and 15, 16, when you begin to realise the complexity of the adult world. That's really fascinating for me. And are you happier now as a writer than you were before? You're very confident, you're in a new relationship, you have children, and you're in a very good place. But it also strikes me that apart from all of that, you seem more confident as a writer, happier writer. Would I be right in thinking that? I may be hiding a lot of things really, really well. All writers fret. And as you go on, you fret more because you worry that you're going to run out of ideas that you're going to write the book that just tanks. And every writer is about two books away from being dropped. You worry simply that that little wellspring of inspiration that you have is going to run dry. And you worry that you're going to be called a fraud. And is that not just, you know, the reality of being an artist, so to speak? You get the tremendous highs and the lows. You get divine inspiration and then you dry up. Is that not just the predicament of all artists? In any creative medium, you're going to have those issues. The difficulty is, I think, that the highs become slightly less high and you become more aware of the lows. You worry more about the nature of what you're doing. All writers get taken by surprise initially. I don't think most of us really expect to be published. You know, somebody comes along and says, we're going to publish that, and your first instinct is, can I have a back and I'll do it properly now? You know, that's it. And then you enter into a kind of cycle. You find yourself like hamster on a wheel. You suddenly find yourself part of this great process, and you begin trying to carve out an area for yourself. And you're always trying to improve. You're always trying to get better. But inevitably, 
you're going to bang your head on the ceiling at some point, or the, the, the improvements are going to become smaller and smaller and harder and harder. And if you look at writers or anybody, again, anybody in a creative area, they go through laws. You know, there are periods when their work or their muse seems to desert them slightly, not entirely. We were talking about Bob Dylan before the interview. Dylan went through a terrible period in the 80s. Neil Young, I'm a big fan of, goes through a bad period in the 80s. It happens with writers too. Philip Roth is an interesting example of somebody who kind of goes through a doldrum period and then finds it again with American Pastoral or John Le Carre gets thrown a bit by the end of the Cold War and suddenly finds all of this righteous anger for the constant gardener, which reinvigorates his career. And I guess that's what you hope for. You accept that at some point there are going to be difficulties, but you hope that you'll pick it up again. You'll find the trail again. But I used to think, you know, with every novel that I write, I wanted to throw it away after 20,000 words, every one of them. And I think for people who are trying to write, I don't give writers workshops because I don't understand the process of writing. So it seems kind of redundant to charge people money for it. But the two things I do know is that every writer experiences doubt. And the doubt sets in very close to the beginning of the novel. You usually get a good run for the first ten or 15,000 words. After that, you begin thinking, my God, this was a terrible idea. This is the one where I get found out. This is one that I need to put aside. And at the same time, you hear the siren call of the new idea, which goes, listen, you're right, that was a bad idea. I'm a much better idea. So why don't we just put that one down to experience and we'll start again? And there's a real danger in doing that because what you'll find is people who want to write but feel that they don't have it in them will often have piles of half-finished manuscripts in the drawer. I guarantee you 99% of them abandon between twenty and 40,000 words. But that doubt never goes away and it doesn't get any easier. But I'm wondering now, John, is that doubt also part of being a perfectionist and being a perfectionist at your craft? It's not even about being a perfectionist. It's set in the process. Doubt is part of it. And I think for people who are trying to write or who haven't published, as you publish, you begin to accept that that doubt about your own abilities, about the value of what you're doing, about whether people are going to want to read it or listen to it if you're a musician or look at it if it's a painting or a film, they come with the territory. But it's very, very difficult for people who are starting out to accept that, to accept that doubt is always going to be there. And that actually, as you get older and you keep doing it, that doubt is going to become stronger and stronger. And that voice that tells you that, you know, maybe you should stop now, that maybe you're on the downward slope, becomes louder and louder and more and more insistent. That's a very hard thing to take. You strike me as a very upfront, direct kind of guy. I imagine you're well able to walk into certain places and peep through doors. But how gritty does the research get? And how close to the dark do you get in your research? I enjoy the research aspect. I think if you're a journalist, you have to be curious about people. And so you bring some of that curiosity with you. And what I found is that people, by and large, are happy to help you. And they're happy to answer questions. For two reasons. Firstly, they want you to get stuff right. And readers want you to get things right. The other reason is that most people are never going to write their life story. They're never going to write it down. And they have all of these amazing stories and experiences. So if somebody comes to them and says, I'm really interested in this, just tell me, talk to me, I have some questions. What you find is once they thaw a little bit, you get the most amazing experiences. I'm not one of these people who believes that writers should be going around sitting in the backs of police cars. I don't think they should be sitting in autopsies. Simply because my reaction to that thing is going to have nothing to do with the reality of it for a policeman or a surgeon or a doctor. It's really not relevant. What I like doing is sitting down with the people who do it and say, how did you feel? When this thing happened, how did you feel? I don't need to do the other stuff. That's just writers being silly, you know? And I always get slightly distrustful when people say, yeah, I was hanging out with the, you know, the FBI. And you're thinking, don't they have better things to be doing than hanging out with you? Shouldn't they be like, you know, solving terrorism or whatever is this supposed to be? So I enjoy the process of research. I'm quite careful about it. I've got better at throwing stuff out than I was before. I thought, wouldn't you research it and found it out? And if you found it interesting, it had to go into the book. And now 90% of it gets thrown away. But I think it's curiosity. It's curiosity to find out how people work 
work and how they think. And that adds a truth to the books. And readers, even if they've never sat down with a private investigator, even if they've never been on a crime scene, they will sense the truth in it. Terrific pace and energy in your writing, I have to say. We put on voices. That's what we do. In fact, the voice that's closest to my own is probably the voice of the footnotes in the children's books. Mm. That's probably how I speak. You know, Parker and the Parker books, he's not me. And I'm not him, but there are huge amounts of me that I put in him. And I suppose the parts of me that tend to look at the world more darkly are the ones I put into him. And so the books tend to be infused with that aspect of me. What's lovely about writing the children's books is that I tend to be able to indulge the other half, which likes stupid jokes and which likes to let its imagination run riot. But there is a satisfaction in writing both of them. They satisfy different needs, I suppose. And one of the lovely things is that when I write one of the kids' books, I've just finished one, I return to the Parker books reinvigorated. I think if I was to spend my time entirely in that universe, not only would I get blinkered, but I'd probably get worn out. So is it like having two lovers? If I had two lovers and had that to draw upon as an experience, I would be able to say whether it was or not. One refreshes the other, so to speak. I think that's probably true. One reinvigorates the other, I suppose. It's like going to the gym. That's probably a better example. I like going to the gym because it's a way of doing something that's completely physical and mind that you just focus on entirely. But if you just exercise your legs all the time, they're going to get sore and worn out and the rest of your body's going to atrophy. So you alternate the exercise. You do different things every day. It's probably the same thing with writing. You're using different muscles for different types of writing. And by doing that, what you find is that one type of writing infuses the other. So you learn a new skill. You stretch a different set of muscles. And when you come back to what you're doing, when I come back to the Parker books and the children's books, I'm probably a slightly better writer. Talking Books. Thanks to Hodges Figures, the bookstore. On News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 FM. 
If you want to get in touch with the show, why don't you send me an email on talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. Now on to something very, very different. Edward Rutherford's dazzling new novel, Paris City of Light, takes readers on an epic voyage through eight centuries of Parisian history. This multi-generational, 800-page blockbuster weaves together a series of dramatic, romantic and intense family chronicles that highlights the burdens of history and of class. Well, Talking Books was delighted to catch up with Edward on his latest trip to Dublin. And I asked Edward, did he choose Paris because it was famous for being the city of love? I love big cities and I'm also fortunate enough to have a huge number of cousins in Paris. So for me, it was like going back into all these, you know, family apartments, family homes and family stories, which gives you a huge sense of validation, you know, if you're constructing a great big family saga and you've got a real set of families to draw from. And I have to say, Edward, Paris, it's a hugely sweeping story. There's a tremendously large narrative with lots of different families and different histories put in. But I imagine that was an unbelievable amount of research to get through. How did you do it? I always walk the place. And as I walk the place, of course, your imagination runs riot. You might imagine anything. So then you research and you educate your own imagination. And after a time, and I found this when I did my first book, which was Sarah, all around Stonehenge and the building of Salisbury Cathedral and London and New York. After a time, the buildings, the stones, the place, they start to talk to you and you start to see history coming up. You know, it's rather like superimposing photographs one on another. The history starts coming out of the place to you and that the whole thing starts to echo and that's really how I set about doing my books. And it's a beautifully written book but the one thing that struck me totally is Paris is essentially the chief character. Yes, it's the chief character in one sense. In another sense, of course, what is a city? A city is actually an enormous, huge family saga, millions of families down the centuries. And that's actually what makes a city what it is. And it's also, for me at least, and I think for many people, a very romantic place. As a teenager, I fell in love there for the first time with an older woman, which is always an education. And uh, I also was lucky enough to be there as a teenager for the revolution of 1968, which completely changed French society, which went from a very conservative society into a very modern and not at all conservative society. So it gives you, the place gives you something that is more than just a geographical place. It gives you some huge, as I say, romantic, historic entity that has its own particular tone and its own magic. And in this romantic meeting place, Class plays a fundamental part in the human relationships and the opportunities facing your key characters. Can we talk a little bit about the role of class in the book? It's a very interesting thing, and the same is true in Ireland, of course, but in Paris it has its own particular take. It's class and religion. So you're the uh, aristocratic family in this book, and they have all kinds of secrets in the past where they have intermixed with other classes without even knowing about it, and we learn that. But the aristocrat is, yes, he has a predetermined life. He's there to serve this highly conservative monarchist priest-driven class. And at the same time, his nemesis is from a revolutionary family. The revolutionaries were basically atheists at the time of the French Revolution. And you've got this anti-clerical dynamic in French society. And those two meet. And then you have a bourgeois class and you have a petit bourgeois, as we would say, class. And then my favorite family, My favourite family, partly because when I was in my early 20s, I uh, had a girlfriend who came from a labouring class family. And my hero, my hero who built 
the Eiffel Tower and the Statue of Liberty and gets involved in the French Resistance, along with the aristocrat, of course, and the revolutionary, is little Thomas Gascon, who comes from the slums on the back of Montmartre, a place actually called the Maquis, funnily enough, which is also the name applied to the, uh, to the French Resistance. And Thomas Gascon is actually the little brother of my ex-girlfriend when I was about 20 years old. Oh, I'm smelling the croissants and the baguettes here now, and it's beautiful. But, you know, as the accordion is playing and you're setting a beautiful scene, as I was going through the book, and I have to say I'm a big fan of historical fiction, I really had to keep my thinking hat on. There's a lot of characters, there's a lot of families, there's a lot of stories, and it's not one to be kind of slowly drinking the bottle of wine to, because you really have to keep your wits about you to get through the book, in terms of the different intermingling characters. Oh, I don't agree at all. I mean, I was drinking a bottle of wine when I wrote it. Uh, No, I think there are lots of characters and they all interact, but that's how it is in life. The trick in this book, actually, is it's a great big family saga and it's set in this wonderfully rich period. That's to say from the Belle Epoque in the late 19th century, the time when the Impressionists were there, when lots of Americans, one of my heroes is an American Impressionist painter who comes over, when you have a bourgeois class who are living a very rich life. It's the time of, well, of the Phantom of the Opera. It's the time of these exotic Paris brothels and, of course, I had to do a lot of reading research to discover about those. It's the time of the tragedy of the First World War when the whole French army mutinied and it wasn't even known about for 50 years. It's the time of Picasso. I mean, you make these wonderful discoveries. I did. Like in 1911, the Mona Lisa was stolen from the Louvre and Picasso was arrested because the police thought he was a suspicious character. We go through into the 20s, the time of Hemingway, the lost generation. Hemingway, who was the most wonderful liar, making up stories about his poverty, which were quite untrue. All these things, I don't think they're difficult to keep in our heads because they're quite familiar to us. I'm just wondering, you know, you've spent your writing life producing 800-page volumes of history, of social history, through stories of families, of class, of romance, of fear, of struggle, of survival. And I'm wondering, are your books so popular? Because it's less intimidating to sit down with an Edward Rutherford book and learn about history than maybe going to university or doing an I course. Well, I wouldn't say don't go to university and read my books instead. But yes, I think that is right. My books may be quite long stories, but they're not in the least bit intimidating. And once people get into them, I hope anyway, they just get wrapped up in the story. I mean, there's a strong male story of my little guy, Thomas Gascon, who builds the Eiffel Tower and the Statue of Liberty and uh, does all kinds of very kind of exciting things. But it's also a great romantic story in that I have this woman who, she falls in love with an American Impressionist at the end of the 19th century, the time of the Dreyfus Affair, and she loses him. He goes back to America. She marries an Englishman, which I guess is second best, and the Englishman dies. She comes back to Paris from England in the 20s, the time of Hemingway, the time of Chariots of Fire, with her daughter. And one day, across a crowded room, she sees the Impressionist painter Frank Hadley. It's like Dorian Gray. He is completely unchanged. How can this be? Now, she's a young widow. Her heart starts to beat, you know, pitter-pat. And then, of course, she realizes it's not Frank, it's his son. Well, he's a young man. She is, we would say, a cougar nowadays, you see. She becomes a cougar, and she falls in love with young Frank. Unfortunately, so does her daughter. So then things get a little bit complicated. And then Frank's father comes back, and things get even more complicated. Now, 
There's a story which I may say, as a man, I have to take an enormous amount of advice when I do my romantic stories. I go to friends, relations, women of different ages, and I ask them, well, how would you feel in such and such a situation? And, of course, my ideas are always wrong, so they put me straight on that. And then you live through it. When you're writing a big story like this, you do. It's like method acting. You get into it, and you live the lives of your characters and you get moved when they're moved. The story won't work if you're not. Paris in particular was especially moving for me because some of my own family were involved in fighting with the Free French and in the French Resistance, so I had a lot to draw on emotionally. But by the end of it all, you do feel as a writer as if you lived a hundred lives and down the centuries. And in this book, I have this great big story arc that goes from the building of the Eiffel Tower through to the French Resistance and an epilogue in 1968. But we have flashbacks into the past, into the days of the Three Musketeers, the French Revolution, of uh, the building of Notre Dame, and so on. We have these flashbacks when we discover the dark secrets of the families in the story, the secrets that the families themselves don't know. The characters don't know what the reader knows about their own past. At the end of it all, you feel as if you've lived for centuries. And tell me, as you're walking the streets of Paris now, enjoying the ambiance and so on, how difficult is it to relax in a city that you spend so much time researching and writing on? How difficult is it to relax in Paris? Are you serious? All that happens to me by the end of the book, true, I'm kind of a little exhausted, but I can relax in Paris and enjoy it ten times more than I did before. I mean, when I used to go, for instance, out of my one of my cousin's apartments where I spent a lot of time, because I was going to and fro to visit all my cousins since my childhood, and I went from his apartment, which incidentally was further up the avenue from where Marcel Proust used to live, across to the little Parc Monceau, which is a very pretty little park in the middle of Paris, and I walked past the place where, and I had no idea of this until I wrote this book, where the Statue of Liberty was built. And it was there, and it was tired over the small houses there. So, suddenly, Paris looks different to me to how it did all my life until I researched this book. And will we ever get a Nairobi or a Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro or maybe even a Ho Chi Minh City? Or will your books always be set in Europe? I've set a book in Russia, which you can argue is Europe or not, as the case may be. My last book before Paris was New York, which I also know very well. And so, anything... Anything is possible. I've just done a book tour where I've been told that I must do Ottawa, Montreal, Toronto, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, even Hobart, Tasmania, and, of course, New Zealand. So anything could happen. Edward, thanks for coming on Talking Books. My pleasure. Talking Books. Thanks to Hodges Figgis, the bookstore. On News Talk 106 to 108. You're very welcome back to Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Susan Cahill. Now, if you're short on ideas on what books to buy for your next flight out of Ireland, why don't you check out the Talking Books webpage on www.newstalk.ie forward slash Talking Books. We've got lots of interesting suggestions for you, so take a look when you have some time to spare. Now, earlier in the week, I was delighted to take a bit of a nature walk and visit the old Kill Mechanic post office in beautiful County Wicklow and meet up with Vanessa O'Loughlin, author and founder of Writing.ie, Ireland's national writing resource website. 
After a nice hot cup of tea and a bit of chat, Vanessa talked me through writing.ie and who the website is aimed at. I have to say it was hard not to get lost in the view outside Vanessa's office window. The sun shone beautifully over the Sugarloaf. Hi Susan, how are you? Come inside. Welcome to the old post office. This is Kill Mechanic Village at its best and you can just see the sugar loaves there over your shoulder. It's a lovely sunny day so it's great to welcome you. I imagine first of all, Vanessa, there's tremendous stories about this old post office. Oh there are, it's amazing. When we first bought it um, we found all sorts of documents and things, old newspapers shoved in corners and all sorts of bits and pieces, absolutely. It's wonderful to live in an old house. And the front room actually used to be the post office and those stories people in the village can remember having seen the sweets on the counter and the newspaper on the counter as well so it's lovely. And when when you think of all the letters that were posted throughout the world and all the stories in them all used to happen from here and now we have writing.ie which is all managed from this old post office in Kilmacanic. it's a lovely synergy isn't it it is there's an irony in that isn't there i think there must be some wonderful letters sent from here you can imagine the love letters sent and i think there was a guinness brewery somebody told me a long time ago that sent out all its letters through Kilmacanic post office i haven't managed to find any postmarked letters from Kilmacanic, but i am looking still for them because i would love to have some and can you tell me a little bit about writing.ie for those who are on familiar with it. What is writing.ie? What's it all about? Well really the website is aimed at every writer of any age right away across the country and actually worldwide too because we get huge traffic from all over the world. Obviously Irish writers have a worldwide reputation and we've got three on the book of long list and so it's really the idea is that it's bringing all the information about writing in Ireland together into one place. It's a vibrant site, it's updated weekly, we have interviews with authors, we have a big section on resources so that if writers are looking for information about how to start writing or how to develop their writing or they're struggling with a particular aspect they'll find information there. And all the articles are written by published authors, so they're all experts in their field. And the one great thing about writing.ie is the repository for anyone who's either thinking of writing, halfway through writing a book, or maybe just wants to know more about the publishing industry in general. I set up writing.ie originally because I had set up a company called Inkwell, which ran writers' workshops. And so I was working hugely with new authors, and we were running workshops with best-selling authors to try and show them how to write and improve their writing. And I realised, as a new writer, there's a big wall between you and the publishing industry, and it's this mysterious business and it's very hard to work out you know, who you should talk to and, and how you should approach it, you know, what you need to do to get published. I suppose as a new writer myself, I realised there was a need for this resource. Competitions are a fantastic way of getting into the writing industry and there was no central point for those. Festivals, obviously we have the most amazing festivals in this country. So I really wanted to bring all that information together into one place. Through writing.ie I was able to do that. And one of the things that strikes me is that while everybody has possibly the potential to be a great writer, not a lot of people have the confidence to believe that they can. And, you know, we're in a very changed Ireland now where most people have a leaving cert and a lot of people get a third level education. But 20 years ago there was a whole world of people who barely got an interest cert. So Ireland has changed but these women and men are possibly women and men aged 50 and up and I'm sure lots of them have a story in them but don't have the confidence to believe that somebody will take their story seriously because they don't have all the fancy degrees and everything. I think one of the key things for people to remember is that it's not about the degree that you have, it's about story and the type of people who left school maybe when they were 13 or 14 and I'm thinking of one particular writer called Eta Roach who lives down in Wexford I think she's living in now and she left school when she was 14 she was very very bad dyslexic so she struggles with that as well but she has stories bursting out of her and she's amazing and she's keeping going and she is dedicated and really that's what the bottom line is for anybody who wants to write don't be shackled by your lack of education or your inhibitions writing's very private it's very solitary so you just get those words on the page write and write and write the difference between published writers and unpublished writers is the rewriting process 
process. So if what you put on that page isn't what you expect it to be, it's not as brilliant as you thought it was going to be, and I can guarantee that happens to everybody, including myself, don't worry about it. Just keep on writing and go back over and edit and edit and edit. Monica McInerney's Australian author who's internationally published, I remember her telling me that she'd, I think, written 40,000 words. And of those 40,000 words, there were two paragraphs that were fantastic. But she would never have found those two paragraphs if it wasn't for all of the words that she'd written. So just keep writing. As you write, you get better and better and better. You improve just naturally. And you'll find that the work gets better and better and you just need to keep on at it. Now, one of the really popular initiatives that you have going is the National Emerging Writers Programme and it's available at all libraries. Can you tell me about that? It is. It's a fantastic programme, actually. It was funded by Dublin City of Literature and it is basically a DVD which covers the whole sort of gambit of writing. The first section is called Start Writing. We've got one called Telling the Story and one called Revising and Rewriting and Overcoming Obstacles. And basically, I spoke to Carlo Gebler and Sinead Moriarty and Deccan Hughes and we videoed the whole thing and we split it up into the various sections and it's available on DVD through all the libraries and it is available online at writing.ie so if you can't get to the library but you have an internet at home if you go to writing.ie it's a big slider on the site you can click on that and you can see all the individual portions we've had a fantastic response from that really amazing we've had people ringing up and emailing who've enjoyed it really what I wanted to do was I wanted to bring the information that we were passing on to writers through the Inkwell workshops and actually make it more accessible to people because that's one of the problems I found that these are techniques that you're not taught in school and getting access to them and understanding them. It's much easier to understand something when somebody explains it to you and hearing the writers speaking is incredible. It connects the dots for a lot of people. And writing can be a hugely therapeutic process and whether it's at writers groups or at workshops, writing can really empower people and empower them to make changes in their lives, to hear their voices and to understand about their authentic real life experiences. So I imagine there's lots of people with time in their hands, whether they're old age pensioners or women and men who have children have left the nest, that their time for their their voices come and it's just about finding out where the resources are like writing.ie and getting stuck into it Oh absolutely, I mean that really is the key it's just a case of writing. A lot of people when you first start writing, the work is very autobiographical because you're touching on things that have happened in your past and you've forgotten about, whether it's fiction or non-fiction and you need to write that out and writing is a very very good way of dealing with it We have a section actually called Mining Memories on the writing.ie website and we liaise with the National Archive on that and so all the stories that come into us go into the National Archive because there's been no social record made of life and Ireland I suppose since the 1930s, no official one. And so all the stories go into that. Basically, they're memory stories, they're history stories, they're people's childhood, the first day of school, you know, memories of a park. They can be simple, they can be world-changing, whatever. They're a great resource and hugely entertaining to read. But for anybody who's interested in writing, it's a great place to start. You know, if you've got a memory of the first day at school or whatever, it's a good place to start. You've got lots of unique blogs on writing.ie, but the one that jumped out at me is WordSpark. Can you tell me about that? It's a one by a fantastic author called Elizabeth Murray, who lives in a caravan down in West Cork. And she has another blog as well called The Green Fingered Gardener. She spends a lot of time gardening. But she's a young adult author and she has a great agent in London. She's literally on the verge of breaking out. She has some fantastic stories. And she's basically collecting together all sorts of things just to inspire people. So if you want to write but you don't know what to write about, if you go along to Elizabeth's blog, you'll find some story prompts and there's photographs and there's all sorts of different things just to get people writing. We get great contributions and the comments are fantastic. And Vanessa, there's another great one which is a very handy resource and hugely entertaining. It's Carry On Writing. It is. That's a blog by Hazel Gaynor. And Hazel Gaynor started started out as a lady who had two small children and she was made redundant and she started in the blogging world and really she's built her career on blogging and now Carry On Writing is very much following her passage as a writer starting to write the things that she sees the people that she meets but also she's just got a great big deal with an American agent at the Folio Literary Agency and um, she's got a fantastic deal for two books she in fact self-published a book called The Girl Who Came Home which is a book about the Titanic so she's gone through the whole process she's self-published she's now going to be published traditionally and she's found the American agent so her blog's great for anybody who you know wants a little bit of inspiration 
inspiration. You can really do it. Anybody can do it. And it's amazing how blogging has transformed the playing field. You don't have to be a somebody to create a really informed and powerful blog. Well, no, that's it. Blogging is completely free. There's WordPress and platform and blogger platform, so you can set up a blog completely for free and you can just talk away about anything you like. I mean, obviously, if you want to attract traffic to your blog and you want to get more readers and you want to use it as a tool to build your career as a writer, then it's a fantastic way to do that. There's lots of different tips and tricks. We actually have a section on blogging on the writing.ie website, the resources section, in Essential Guides. There's a thing about writing a blog and there's loads of tips there for people who are really serious about it, who want Google to be able to find their blog and all those types of things. But you can write about anything. I always say to people, try and think of an unusual language what it is about you that you have a little bit of expertise in. If you're a mum, you're an expert in parenting. Hazel's first blog, we mentioned Carry On Writing, was one called Hot Cross Mum when she first started out because she had two small boys. So it can be absolutely anything. Now, Vanessa, you have your hands full with writing.ie and you've got two children and you have to keep this old post office going. But you're also involved in Irish Pen. I am indeed. Irish Pen's an amazing organisation. It was founded by Lady Gregory. The big thing I suppose people know us for is the Irish Pen Award, where we give a Lifetime Achievement Award to a particular writer. And writers who've been included in that have been Roddy Doyle and Maeve Binchy, and last year was John Banville. Irish Pen is a fantastic organisation. It's part of International Pen, and International Pen is very much the organisation for editors and for journalists and for all people who are involved in the writing professions. But they have a remit to make sure that free speech is maintained and that writers and prisons are embraced. And there's lots of different subcultures within our International Pen. You mentioned there are writing groups and prisons. Again, writing is empowering people. It empowers change on an individual level and also on a collective level. So there's a place for writing everywhere in the world, whether it's in a prison, whether it's in a rehabilitation centre, or even a hospice. Oh, absolutely. And particularly when you mention hospices, I know there's an author further down the country who specialises in therapeutic writing. So absolutely, you can write anywhere and it absolutely is amazing. It's empowering. Well, Vanessa, thanks so much for getting me out of the office and inviting me into your lovely post office in Kilmechanic. I have to say the views are glorious and there's a real feeling of history here. Thank you so much. You just have to ignore all the piles of paper that are around the office. Okay, before I head tonight, I just want to say thank you to all our lovely listeners who took time to email talkingbooks at newstalk.ie. It's great to hear from you, really great, so keep the emails coming in. And I hope to feature some of your interesting book suggestions and ideas over the next couple of weeks. And again, if you want to catch up with any of our shows that you've missed, they're all up on our programme webpage, www.newstalk.ie forward slash talkingbooks. And there's plenty of podcasts to download. Now, just to let you know, on Wednesday the 14th of August, in Ireland's oldest bookshop, Hodges and Figgis, on Dublin's Dawson Street, Joe Joyce will launch his first novel called Echo Land. The launch and the reading will take place at 6.30 in Hodges and Figgis and it promises to be a really interesting night because Joe Joyce's novel is set during the emergency so we hear a lot about spying and politics. Now next week, Talking Books will feature a lively interview with Man Booker award-winning Irish novelist Anne Enright. So for fans of The Gathering or any of Anne's books, don't forget to tune in. And for all Beckett fans out there, the Enniskillen International Beckett Festival takes place from Thursday the 22nd of August to Monday the 26th. Happy Days is the world's first annual festival to celebrate the work and influence of Nobel Prize winning writer Samuel Beckett. It promises to be a superb festival with events spanning theatre, literature, music and the visual arts. So if you're stuck for some ideas on what to do and where to go, why don't you take a trip up north to Fermanagh Lakelands and pay Enniskillen and Mr Beckett an impromptu visit. Well, that's it for Talking Books for tonight. All that's left for me to do is to thank my team, Kate Neownall on research, Paddy Dunahoo on sound, and Ronan Brunock, who produced tonight's show. We've been Talking Books. Why don't you switch off the mobile, put the feet up, grab a good book, and have a very 
very good night. Talking books. Thanks to Hodges Figures, the bookstore. On News Talk 106 to 108. Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie.